Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than a million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we discuss how to build self-control and self-esteem. We look at what happens when you lose control and how to develop the strategies so that you can feel calm and collected in tough situations. We discuss the importance of having an allegiance to reality, share concrete strategies for building self-esteem, discuss the relationship between pain and fulfillment, and share a strategy that will help you never get angry again with our guest, Dr. David Lieberman. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure to sign up and join the email list today. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide, and it's called How to Organize and Remember everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every week called Mindset Monday. Our listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short, it's simple, it's filled with articles, videos, stories, things we found interesting or fascinating in the last week. Lastly, You're going to get exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. You can help us vote on guests. You can help us change our intro music and much more. You can even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. You'll also have access to exclusive giveaways that only people who are on the email list get access to and much, much more. 
be sure to sign up and join the email list. There's some incredible stuff, but only subscribers who are on the email list are getting access to this awesome information. In our previous episode, we discussed what happens when you mistake being busy for creating results. We took a hard look at time management and examined concrete strategies for carving out more time. We looked at the dangerous power of defaults in shaping our behavior and how we can use them to our advantage. We examined how to have a healthy relationship with your inbox and much more with our guest, Jake Knapp. If you want to learn how to get more done in less time, listen to that episode. Now for the show. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. David Lieberman. David is a New York Times bestselling author and expert in the fields of human behavior and interpersonal relationships. His most recent work, Never Get Angry Again, dives into the science behind our emotions and how we can stay calm in any situation. His work has been featured on ABC, The Today Show, NPR, and much more. David, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. And I'd love to start out with kind of talking about what are some of the kind of psychological underpinnings of anger? You know, why people get angry? Excellent question. And, you know, one of the reasons why the book has gotten so much attention is because while you can look at a lot of different branches for anger, whether a person feels threatened or attacked or frustrated, at the core of it is a feeling of vulnerability, which is why, for example, in interpersonal relationships, a person is mocked or scorned, ridiculed, embarrassed, you know, uh, feels ashamed. These types of things all have their core, their root at feeling vulnerable. And ultimately, it's that sensation that we are rejected, that we're not good enough, that we're powerless over a situation or over ability to connect to other people is what causes us to become angry. Now, not everyone unleashes anger in the same way. I'm sure we know from our own relationships, some people are overt with their anger. They express it very aggressively. Other people more passive aggressively. They'll get back at you a little ways. Other people will suppress it. Others shut down. So the different masks or channels for anger. But make no mistake, when we feel powerless, unless we're able to acknowledge those feelings, they're going to manifest in an unhealthy way. I think that's really interesting because when you look at anger and you know, think of someone who's kind of angry with an angry outburst or whatever, the initial thought or kind of the, the way that I would think about it is that somebody who's angry doesn't seem like they're actually hurting or feeling vulnerable. You know, they seem almost the opposite. They seem very kind of imposing and threatening. That's right. That's right. And it is there. See, when we become angry, physiologically speaking, the brain releases a number of neurotransmitters and hormones. You've got adrenaline, something called cortisol, which is the stress hormone, also responsible for weight gain. There's an interesting connection there. But it is the illusion of feeling in control. So rather than feel fear, the fight or flight or freeze response sort of takes over and we become angry as a way to compensate for those feelings of vulnerability. And tell me a little bit more about that. You know, how does something like, so let's say self-esteem or self-image play into someone's anger? Excellent. So here's in a nutshell, here's the uh, psychology that is at the foundation of anger. And that's like this. The degree to, work to which a person generally loves themselves, real self-esteem, all right? It's not to be confused with confidence or with the ego, which is a false self. The degree to which a person really, truly, honestly loves themselves, recognizes that they are worthy of good things in life, treats other people with respect, themselves with respect, and so on, that is the degree to which their ego is not engaged. But as our self-esteem erodes, as we like ourselves less, 
then the ego engages to compensate for those feelings of guilt, inferiority, shame, insecurity, and so on. And it's the ego that is a projection of what of how we want the world to see us, and its job is to protect us. So the degree to which we don't like ourselves is the degree to which we need other people to like ourselves. The degree to which we don't respect ourselves is the degree to which we crave other people to respect us. And that's the function of the self-esteem and sort of ego, they're on a seesaw, one goes up, the other goes down. So the less I like me, the less I love me, that means my ego's engaged. And if my ego's engaged, then I'm going to be more prone to being scared because I'm vulnerable. I'm basing my self-worth on how I'm viewed by you. So if you are mean to me or you scorn me or you ridicule me or make fun of me and so on, my ego's engaged and boom, the anger trigger is activated. I think it's really interesting. I mean, just again, this idea that when people are angry, it's often coming from a place where they're scared or hurt. And they may not even recognize that at a conscious level, but they're not, you know, in many ways, it's not about you. It's often about them and kind of their own personal issues. That's right. That's right. And if you look, are you familiar with the book by John Sarno, Healing Back Pain? No, I'm not. Okay. So basically, John Sarno wrote a book and he has a whole methodology about how to overcome different physiological uh, symptoms and ailments, including back pain. He extended it to a number of the areas. And he talks about how anger is at the root. And even by doing nothing else, if you are able to look at the pain and, is, and recognize that it comes from suppressed anger, he, he's shown... It's study after study after study how you're able to sort of allow that pain, that physical pain to dissipate. In much the same way, if you go now to the root of anger and see that it's grounded in fear, and if you see ultimately, I'm getting upset at my spouse, I'm getting upset at my child because I feel like I'm not in control, I feel vulnerable, I feel like they don't respect me, and you understand that the core of the anger is really fear, just by looking at it, it helps to dissolve. So how does the need for control kind of play into when people get angry. Excellent. So the degree to which we have self-esteem, we spoke about that just before, is that the more I love me, right, the more I respect me, the more I'm able to respect and love other people, and the more I'm able to receive and accept their love. Uh, just parathetically, which is why people who have low self-esteem have very difficult relationships, because on one hand, they desperately want you to be close to them. However, they recognize at a very deep level that they don't feel lovable. So why would you love someone that's so unlovable? So they sort of push you away. At the same time, they have a hard time giving love and respect because you can only give what you've got. So they feel very isolated. But to go to the core of your question is that we all need to feel some sense of control, some degree of ability to maintain to have some sort of confidence in our future, that we are safe, that we are secure. That's ultimately what we, why we want control, is to feel safe and secure. So if I don't love me, it's very hard for me to feel loved by other people, loved by God, loved by my children, loved by anyone. I don't feel secure, but I desperately want to feel like I'm in charge, like I've got traction. Therefore, I'm going to seek to control, which is why... People with low self-esteem are the most controlling people. Again, not always overtly. You're not always going to see it coming, but they will control, control, control because they need to be able to try to influence your behavior, to influence the circumstances because they don't feel in control themselves. So for somebody who feels like they don't 
have control of themselves or sort of feels like they're losing control, how can they start to kind of combat that or take steps to alleviate that? Good. So in order to understand that, we'll, we sort of take a step back and look at the deeper psychology. As we said, self-esteem means that I've got a sense of self-love, self-worth, and my ego is not engaged. The million-dollar question, which is your question, is how do I gain self-esteem, right? How do I begin to feel that sense of worthiness? And even though I may have been, you know, beaten up in childhood, either literally or metaphorically, I might have had a, you know, a rough run in life, a lot of challenges, the of self-esteem begins when we begin to make better choices and exercise self-control. See, self-control is at the core of self-esteem. If I can't control my behavior and make good choices, I'm certainly not going to do things that are responsible. I'm going to either live for an image, I'm going to overindulge, I'm going to eat in excess, excess entertainment, excess sleep, whatever it is, I'm going to overindulge in unhealthy ways rather than invest in myself. So by exercising self-control, I increase my ability to make better choices, which de facto gives me self-esteem. And as my self-esteem goes up, my ability to exert control other over other people, my need to do that decreases. So how do we sort of cultivate or exercise self-control effectively? So number one is this, no one wants to invest in anyone or anything that you don't care about. So you've got sort of the chicken and the egg. I don't love myself. You know what? I was told I was nothing growing up. I've got a lousy this, lousy this. So you've got a person who's coming from a very broken place, and it makes sense. Why would you put an energy, effort, attention into anyone or anything that you don't love or respect? So the beginning, the beginning of this sort of coming out from under the rock is simply to recognize that you're in pain. In order, mental health requires an allegiance to reality at all costs. So there are people that will say, you know what, you know, just forget about it, just trudge forward, don't, you know, focus, et cetera. If a person feels broken, if they're suffering with low self-esteem, they feel angry, they don't feel in control, the number one thing to do is to acknowledge, to respect the fact that they're in a place of pain. And that is with self-compassion, not self-pity. Meaning, you know what? It's rough for me right now. I'm not going to hide from it or from myself. I'm not going to say it's not real because that's not being genuine. Right now is a place of pain. I'm going to honor it. I'm going to respect it. And I'm going to have compassion for myself. That's number one. Do not beat yourself up more. The rest of the world has already done it enough. Do not pretend it doesn't exist because then you're moving from a place to illusion, which will make you less healthy. Stay in reality. Say, okay, this is difficult. This is painful, but it's going to come from a place of self-compassion. And then from that place where you acknowledge you're in pain with self-love, you begin to grow out of it. And that happens as follows. Number one is you want to put a plan into action. You know, what makes it very difficult for us to connect with our a sense of self is that we've lived in for so long by driven by the ego, meaning I'm going to do this because it'll impress somebody else. I'm going to do this because it'll gain me praise or honor. And we've got sort of cut off from our soul, from our real purpose, from our spiritual DNA, which our passion, which drives us. So we want to reconnect. So rather than push ourselves forward, we're almost pulled toward our destiny by our unique purpose. So Number one is simply to acknowledge where you are with self-compassion. Number two is try to reconnect with who you are, what you're living for, why you want what you want. And ask yourself, you know, if I didn't have the problems I have, 
what kind of person would I be? What would I do? If I had a different childhood growing up, if I felt unconditionally loved, and begin to expand the possibilities of who and what you can become. And just allow yourself to explore potentials that you may have shut the door on. Once you do that and you begin to crystallize, you know, sort of something that stirs your soul, then you begin to put a plan into action. Say, okay, if I want to go from point A to point B, my first step is I'm going to acknowledge I'm at point A. We already said that, right? And you go into ways you can't say, I want to go to Omaha without the satellite finding out that you're in New York. You have to see where you're at. And then ask yourself, what can I do to move myself in this direction? Then you put goals into place, you put a plan of action into place, and you begin to move slowly. Simply the progress, the steps that you take of moving out of the darkness toward a passion, towards a goal, towards something that stirs your soul is invigorating in and of itself. And it'll begin to fuel each step and each step and each step. And you'll go further and further towards your objective. There's a tremendous amount of stuff that I want to kind of unpack from that. I mean, there's so many different things I want to get into. I definitely want to get into this idea of kind of having an allegiance to reality, accepting reality, but before we get into that, you kind of touched on this idea of expanding the possibilities of who and what you can become. And you threw out a few sort of questions to ask around doing that. Could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe share some of those questions in more detail and kind of why they're so effective? Sure, Matt. So, you know, for so long, we have confined ourselves and defined ourselves by other people and very often by the ego, meaning that if we make a choice because it merely looks good, we're selling ourselves out, we're selling ourselves short, we're doing something to win the praise of others, we're twisting, contorting, moving away from what we know is right and responsible, from what's good for us in order to accommodate somebody else's to win them over. And when you sell yourselves out, it chips away your self-esteem. We make a lot of these choices, whether it's the clothes we wear or, you know, the car we buy, the person we date, the job we take, we don't realize the entire trajectory of our lives may very well be shaped by the ego. So it's important to sort of take a step back and just get off the crazy train. And that, you know, is, a, is I, I work with a lot of executives with the midlife crisis, which seems to be getting earlier and earlier for people today. Uh, you know, it used to be in the 40s and then 30s, and now sometimes it's in the 20s, you know, because people can earn a lot of money and, and reach what they would consider the pinnacle of success at a very early age. But they realize they haven't found happiness when they've achieved all these objectives because they weren't based on what they truly wanted. They were based on what they thought would win uh, the praise or approval of other people. And so the question you want to begin to ask yourself is, you know, what would I do if I had all the money I needed? What would I do if I didn't have the problems that I have? What would I do if I felt unconditionally loved? What would I do if I felt that I couldn't fail? Now, you know, all of these questions are not suitable or necessary for everyone, but you see what they do is they begin to sort of chip away at the ego, chip away at the facade, the things that the ego wants. It wants money, power, fame, control, right? And it's all inauthentic. It's all an illusion because real control is being able to rise above your nature and act responsibly, make good choices, gain self-esteem, and then you're able to pursue things that are drawing you based on your soul. But if you can't exercise self-control, you don't invest in yourself, now you're completely ego-driven. And you could be driving very fast and furious, but in the wrong direction. So you're waking up in the morning, putting in a you know 20-hour-a-day 
uh, you know, 80 hour uh, work weeks and then find yourself simply burnt out. Other people can put in 80 hours a week and they find themselves invigorated. The difference between those two is one is living for the ego, the other for their soul. And when you're living for your soul, you're going to be reinvigorated. And the more you do, the more energy and passion you have. But when you're living simply for an image, you will eventually become drained. And that's when you'll look around and you'll say, you know what, I've got everything, but my life still stinks. So many different pieces to unpack from that and, and places to go. I want to, before we kind of forget about it, the conversation moves beyond it. I want to circle back to this idea of having, as you sort of put an allegiance to reality at all costs. Can you tell me more about that and explain why it's so important? Sure. You know, there's an old saying that neurotics build castles in the sky, psychotics live in them, and psychiatrists charge rent. We all have our neuroses. We all have our, our little stuff. But we know from our own experience that the more you engage in life, the more you're living life, the healthier and happier you are. The people that try to get out of stress, they don't want to deal with any issues, they become more and more neurotic because in order to be grounded, you have to live in reality. And the beginning of mental health is when we face ourselves. We look in the mirror and ask ourselves, if I want to be more authentic, where have I been inauthentic? Where have I been lying to myself? Where have I been trying to ignore a reality? And once again, Matt, you know from your own life, if there's something difficult you have to do, you've been procrastinating about, whatever it is, the by tackling it, by doing it, you feel great. By ignoring it, it doesn't go away. You end up compounding the problem and you feel less good about yourself. So anytime we're, you know, whether it's a dental appointment we've been putting off, whether it's dealing with a certain responsibility or obligation or facing a certain truth about ourselves, our past, our lives, our relationships, whenever you acknowledge it, accept it, if you can change it or work on improving it or changing it, then you begin to feel so empowered and that is when we become healthy. The less healthy a person is, the less they want to do with reality, and the less they want to do with reality, the less healthy they become. So ultimately, you know, we've got with this call, I'm sure, I know you're familiar with the pleasure pain mechanism. We move towards pleasure and away from pain. But the ability to face the pain, to face our legitimate responsibilities and obligations is ultimately what's going to bring us the greatest degree of pleasure. If you ignore responsibilities and obligations because they're painful and seek mere comfort or you escape or you want to sort of be out of pain, you end up with suffering and you move further, further away from mental health, further and further away from reality, further and further away from goals and healthy relationships. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. 
LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So what does the the work kind of look like? It's, you know, for somebody who wants to do that kind of heavy lifting of, of facing themselves and starting to acknowledge and accept the things that are really going on, you know, concretely kind of what does that actually look like in terms of what you would be doing to do that? Excellent. So number one, the foundation is always the same. And that is to acknowledge that, you know what, this stinks. This is painful. This is tough. Right now, I'm going to do something that's difficult. But I also know that it's an investment in myself. Be honest with yourself. You know, it's a hard conversation. It's a difficult conversation, but one that is so empowering because you're facing reality. You're living in the swift current of life. You're not ignoring it. And in reality, we find pleasure. So it's acknowledging that this is challenging, this is difficult, and then asking yourself, where have I been inauthentic? Where have I been hiding in my relationships? Have I been blaming my spouse because I haven't measured up? Have I been blaming my parents and selling myself on a narrative for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years for something that happened in the past? What story do I begin, do I, have I been telling myself time and again to keep me from acknowledging my responsibilities and accepting my obligations. And that is the beginning of growth. When we begin to ask ourselves, okay, fine, I'm going to stop blaming the rest of the world. Yes, there may have been a number of factors that conspired and, and contributed to put me here right now, but what can I do to move forward? And the research is clear. The beginning of mental health sort of a transformation in going from anxious and depressed to feeling alive and invigorated with more self-esteem and confidence is when we accept responsibility for what we can control. There are plenty of things we can control, but as long as you're in blame mode, you're not going to be in solution mode. So ask yourself, what can I do to move my life in a more positive direction? Have an honest question with yourself. What can I do in my relationships to be more authentic? How can I act with a greater degree of integrity? Do I respect me? What can I do to have a greater degree of respect for myself, whether it's tucking in my shirt, whether it's losing weight, whether it's exercising, I want to begin to invest in me for tomorrow and not simply look to escape for today. And as we begin to invest in ourselves and begin to improve and work on our relationships, on who we are emotionally, spiritually, financially, we begin to feel great because we're taking control of our lives and nothing is more empowering or invigorating than accepting responsibility for who we are and what we can become. I love the idea of kind of an increased acceptance of responsibility and and exploring this this relationship between blame and excuses and how that often kind of feels more comfortable, feels easier 
and protects your sort of ego, your identity, but actually ultimately makes you less successful and less happy. Actually, you just summarized it better than I did in five minutes. You did in 60 seconds. But but yeah, that's exactly right. And we live in a culture that continues to foster the idea about victimhood and not accepting responsibility because it's sort of a, a you know group, you know, a herd mentality that, you know, if I can blame the rest of the world, then I don't have to feel guilty or I feel ashamed for anything that I do. So it recuses me of responsibility, it advocates me from any sort of obligation, and I get to blame the rest of the world and opt out. The problem is you end up with suffering. There is no escape. The way to gain self-esteem is not by taking away responsibility. It's by accepting responsibility by moving forward. And while you're, once again, stuck in victim mode, stuck in blame mode, you will never, ever, ever move forward. This doesn't mean that other people didn't make it tough for you. But the question you always wanna ask yourself is, okay, fine, what now? Should I continue to blame my parents? Should I continue to blame my upbringing? Should I continue to blame everyone under the sun? Or will I take responsibility right now, make a decision and move myself forward? And fewer things are more empowering than the power of a decision to say, I am going to make a different choice and you will make a different choice. You'll have a different quality of life. You know, in many ways, I think it it ties back to a lot of the work of Carol Dweck and the psychologists that talk about the growth mindset and these kinds of things. If you live in a place where you're constantly blaming other people, you're constantly making excuses and you're constantly kind of at odds with reality and with accepting the way things truly are, you're essentially trapping yourself in a cycle that repeats and creates more and more suffering. That's right. That's right. And just to appreciate the psychological backdrop here is that Look, if you're in an argument with somebody, you're upset with somebody, and maybe you're to blame, but you don't want to acknowledge it or accept it, or you've got a responsibility you don't want to face, what the ego will do is it will minimize, justify, rationalize. It has a whole you know, a number of tools in its arsenal in order to keep us from feeling guilty, to keep us from feeling bad because we didn't step up. But there's only so much you can color reality and distort it until you begin to have a very poor relationship with reality and it no longer resembles the truth. And that is mental illness. When my impression of reality, my view of reality, my perspective doesn't reconcile, doesn't jibe with the actual truth. And that means then that I'm going to be living in la-la land. And that is, quite frankly, drifting from neuroses to psychoses. When I'm not willing to accept the pain of my reality, so I'll substitute my own reality. And once again, there's only so long you can pretend to live in, you know, in a made-up world before it comes crashing down on you. You know, I think it's it's also important and just kind of reiterating this, that this isn't necessarily just sort of you saying toughen up and deal with it. This is a conclusion that's supported by a huge body of of scientific research. Of course, no, and this has this is much deeper than that, and for sure. And, and the research in positive psychology, the research in, with a number of great psychologists, whether it's you know Martin Sigelman, whether it's uh, Scott Peck, you know, at the end of the day, they all boil down to the same thing. There is no pill you can take that will make you happy permanently. There is nothing you can do that will allow for you to fundamentally change the quality of your life, except if you make different choices. You ever hear, you know, it's fascinating. 
You ever hear the idea of something called the lottery curse? I have heard of that, yeah. Right. So it was here's what research shows that a person that wins a million dollars or more after one year has a higher statistical rate of suicide, drunken driving, divorce and even bankruptcy because all the money did was give them more opportunities to make lousier choices faster and easier than they could before. And the research is replete with examples that money, intelligence, even life experience don't have any bearing on a life satisfaction. Only the quality of our choices within the situation changes our happiness, which is why we know people that are handed everything under the sun. They have every single advantage going for them, and they're miserable human beings. We look at other people that have been through hell and back, and they move through life with a sense of confidence and invincibility and trust and courage because they make different choices within that situation. And look, circumstances will come and go. Win a million dollars, you'll be in a good mood. Lose a million dollars, less good mood. But fundamentally, the studies are clear. If you want to change the quality of your life, you have to change the quality of your choices. That is inescapable. There's no way to get around that. That's a great way to frame it. And I mean, that's in many ways, kind of the core thesis of our show is is how do we help people improve their ability to make better decisions? That's right. And look, motivational quotes, positive affirmations, these are all things that are helpful. End of the day is the power of decision is the power to change your life. And it is a decision. It is a decision that you make. Whoever is listening, watching, understanding, getting this, you have to appreciate. If you want to change your life, you have to change your choices. Make a decision to change something and you will begin to move your life in a more positive direction. Now, change is scary. It's uncomfortable. It's uneasy. At times painful, which is why people don't do it. But knowing that that change is going to bring you more pleasure if you're just able to hold on, just hang on. Don't quit too soon. Sometimes we are just one step away from the magic, but we quit too soon and we don't want to continue moving forward because it's difficult. But take that extra step and you will find that the world, the universe will just open doors for you. And it really is necessary to have a degree of persistence. And if you look at the people who are successful, they're the ones that are able to just fall down, get back up, fall down and get back up, fall down and get back up, moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. And then at some point, something magical happens. And that is you realize you're living a different quality of life. You're living the kind of life that you're actually happy with. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a, such a good example and really kind of, you know, describes how important it is to focus on make high quality decisions, be persistent, don't, you know, don't give up in the face of adversity and really to embrace discomfort and embrace, you know, painful experiences because they're a core part of improving, growing and ultimately creating meaning in your life. That's right. That's right. And if I'd like to share uh, one really great technique that I put in the book because it helps us to overcome anger, but it's very, very useful in allowing ourselves to be able to make a change much more quickly. And it has to do with something called availability heuristics. Availability heuristics basically says is that how we see ourselves, which means our self-concept, is based not necessarily on the 
choices that we've made in the past, but rather how easily we can recall those choices, how available they are to memory. Meaning that if you want to, let's say, act more assertive, let's say you're somebody that has been very meek, very uh, unable to assert yourself, and you sort of swallow your anger or swallow your feelings and so on. So you'd say, okay, fine, I hear what Lieberman's saying, make better choices, assert myself. But it's not me. I'm not that kind of guy. I've been living my life for 20, 25, 30 years this way. I'm just not that personality. And here is an amazing way to help overcome that very, very quickly. And it works like this. All you have to do is mentally rehearse, visualize times that you've acted in a certain way. In our example, let's say assertive. And it could be when you were seven, when you were nine, when you were 10, go ahead and string them together in sort of a 60 second movie trailer where you go over each time, one after the other, after the other. And throughout the day, go ahead and play this trailer for yourself, 60 seconds in your mind, visualizing when you acted this way. Then when you need to become more assertive, for example, instantly you're going to be able to engage what we call, once again, availability heuristics. You'll see yourself, your self-concept is going to come right to the surface and it makes it infinitely more easy to act in the way that you've just been rehearsing seeing yourself as acting in. Yeah, I think that's a great strategy. And I mean, we love getting into heuristics and biases on the show and, and using them to your advantage, I think, is always a great strategy. And in many ways, that strategy also kind of touches on another topic that we get into a lot, which is the power of visual memory and how important it is to kind of use these these vivid visual memories because they really can impact your perception of reality. They're much more memorable and they also, you know, as you're describing with this strategy, can shape your self-concept, you know. We essentially sort of cherry pick our own experiences and memories to shape whatever our beliefs of ourselves are. But you can, you're saying essentially that you can proactively cherry pick certain memories from your past to shape your behavior to be what you want it to be. That's right. And here's what the research finds is, you know, we know people that are really great, wonderful individuals and they have such a warped perception of themselves and you say, you know, why do you think you're a, you know, a loser or why do you think you're not good at this? And they'll go ahead and call from all their successes the one or two, three times that they weren't successful. And they have, you know, that perfect recall when it comes to things that they've messed up on, but they are completely not able to connect with the times that they've been successful. And simply by bringing them to the surface and visualizing them, and there are a myriad of studies, you know, that I bring out and that are certainly out there on the power of visualization and the ability, because just parathetically, the visual cortex is much larger than many other parts of the brain responsible for uh, for thought. So when you are visualizing something, you're engaging much more of the brain and it's easier to recall it in much the same way that, you know, there's, there's a great book called Moonwalking with Einstein that talked about memory and it used and explained how visualization is so important. And so, you know, when a person begins to, you know, misuse their imagination by visualizing the worst case scenarios or the time things didn't work out, they're really stacking the odds against all of the logic, all the statistics, all the probability they could, could be successful because they're visualizing the worst case of the times that they failed. So really by going back and rehearsing those times when you've been successful, it is so magnificent in 
just allowing you to act in accordance with how you see yourself. And that's what the self-concept is. Self-concept, it pictures like a rubber band and you're only going to stretch it so far without snapping back to its original position. So with this technique, you literally move the rubber band. You don't have to stretch it. You move it. You now see yourself as a different person. And because we act in accordance with how we see ourselves, when you visualize and by the way, the studies also find it doesn't have to be actual events. It could be visualizing how you're going to act in that situation. It also allows you to engage availability heuristics, see yourself as that kind of person, and then it makes it infinitely more easy to act in that way. So I want to circle back and dig in a little bit more. I think this has been a really fruitful discussion. I think we've gotten a ton of, of kind of strategies and really gotten to the meat of how we can sort of take responsibility and accept reality as it is and how that can help shift and build, you know, shift our self-concept, build self-esteem. One of the kind of building blocks of that that we touched on that I want to explore a little bit more is something you touched on, which is the idea of sort of the relationship between comfort and meaning and how they're sort of opposed to one another. That's right. So, you know, if you ask most people, there's a great rabbi that was the name of Rabbi Noah Weinberg, and he used to ask his class, you know, what is the opposite of pleasure? And then most people would say pain. And he would explain the opposite of pleasure. It's not pain. It's comfort. You know, real pleasure is found in living life, engaging in life. And it takes work. It takes effort to get through to it. Comfort is an escape from life. And so, you know, we go for this low-hanging fruit of comfort, but here's the thing. What do we have that allows for us to move in the right direction? If you've got pleasure in one hand and comfort in the other, why would we want to choose pleasure over comfort? And the answer is this, is because the more meaning something has, the more pleasure you can extract from it. Therefore, you know, sitting on the couch and, you know, watching television, eating cheese doodles is very comfortable, but it has no meaning, so it has no real genuine pleasure. And there's only so much, you know, so long you can do that without going crazy, but you're, it's a very low level of existence. But when you do something that's more meaningful, you're going to naturally extract more pleasure from it because meaning is what is, is connected to pleasure. So it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It's going to take a lot of discomfort, but there is nothing you can achieve that's worthwhile. Ask any Olympic athlete, ask any successful business person, ask anyone in a successful marriage relationship. Does it take work? Does it take effort? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes, because you get to the real pleasure. And people that settle for comfort, people that will, you know, trade this low level of existence because they're unwilling to invest effort and to work in order to get to the pleasure are going to find themselves not just miserable, but they're going to find themselves less happy and with more pain. In other words, there is no escape from life. Anyone that thinks I'm going to avoid the pain of putting in the effort to get to the pleasure, I'll just go ahead and escape. They end up with more pain because they move into suffering and suffering is a consequence of not accepting responsibility. So, you know, is it easier to watch television than it is to go ahead and to, you know, do your taxes? Sure. Is it easier to go ahead and to, you know, drink and to, you know, to do drugs or to do whatever it is and escape from life rather than to go ahead and to get a job and to, and to move forward? Yeah. But ultimately the escapism comes crashing down. There is no permanent place you can escape to that life reality won't find you. So when you really understand that there is no escape and the best way, the only way, the surest way, not just to be happy, but to enjoy an amazing degree of mental health and quality relationships requires you to engage life, to live 
live life. So when you see that wave coming in the ocean, don't run the other way, dive through it. Have some trust that things are going to be good. And as you begin to move forward, you will find that your soul just reawakens and you are just invigorated with a greater degree of passion and excitement for life. I think that's a great explanation of that. And in many ways, you know, if you look at something that, you know, I think the, the, the kind of idea of sitting on the couch and eating cheese puffs is a good middle ground, but the, the sort of the logical extreme of this pursue pleasure at any, or sort of pursue comfort at any cost is the, the idea of, you know, somebody who's doing heroin, right? Like at the moment while you're doing that, it feels incredible, but obviously the life of a heroin addict is one that is not very enviable. That's right. That's right. You know, there's an old slogan back in the 80s, if it feels good, do it. Nothing more insane than that. If you want to feel good, you do good. If you set out merely to feel good, you'll end up feeling lousy. You know, and yes, there are things that are enjoyable, things that are pleasure, things that are fun, entertaining, you know, excursions, all these things in proper measure are great. Everyone needs to sharpen the saw, as it were, and to relax, to, to sort of recharge. But there's a big difference between giving yourself time off to re-energize and escaping from life because you don't want to face the pain and responsibility. Well, we spent a lot of time kind of digging into self-concept and self-esteem and and how these all kind of fit into a lot of the underpinnings of pain, suffering, and, and you know, manifest in many ways as anger. I want to kind of circle back and, and touch back on anger a little bit. What would you say to somebody or how do you think about the idea that anger can sometimes be a useful tool or can sometimes be sort of fuel to motivate you or push you to, you know, achieve certain things or to kind of get through boundaries or challenges? Yes, right. So I've had more than a couple conversations about this with colleagues and what we say conversations, meaning debates, heated arguments. And there are those that will definitely contend that there is a positive use for anger. And certainly that that's true. We see people who are sort of, you know, I'm going to show them, you know, I'm not going to you know, be pushed around. I'm going to go ahead and prove to the world that I can do this and so on. Great. Fine. However, you're much better off driving yourself, being pulled by the pleasure in what you're doing and connecting to the joy and the innate meaning in what you're doing rather than basing it on anger, which is ego driven, meaning it's going to put you in a very precarious situation because let's say those people that were not supportive and you were sort of driving to sort of prove them wrong ended up saying, you know what? Okay. You know, you're a great guy. I could see that you could do it. Where does your drive go? It goes out the window. Moreover, the problem with sort of, you know, using anger or believing that you should keep it in your tool belt is when you're in the heat of an argument with somebody and you haven't taken anger off the table, you're going to assume because your perspective is narrowed and your, your ego is engaged that now is a proper time to be angry. So while anger may be channeled in a healthy direction 1% of the time, I'd much rather take it off the table and be right 99% of the time because no one ever walked away from a conversation and argument and said, you know what? I wish I would have gotten angrier. I would have been able to handle myself so much better. No one ever walked away from a situation and said, you know what? If I were angrier, I would have been able to whatever. It clouds our ability to think clearly, to exercise good judgment. Which, by the way, something we mentioned in the beginning of the show is that when we become angry, one of the hormones that get re released is something called cortisol, which is also called a stress hormone. And interesting, it interferes with the ability for the brain, the prefrontal cortex, to process information. It literally makes us dumb. 
So when we become angry, we're literally blinded by our ability to see clearly and to act effectively. So the answer to your very good question is, can anger have productive uses? Sure. But I would much rather take it off the table as an option and be right 99% of the time, then keep it on the table as an option and use it as a fuel or use it in a way that ends up causing me much more damage. So I think we explored in pretty good detail the the longer term strategies for thinking about and dealing with anger. How would you think about, you know, maybe some more short term strategies in the interim? How do we deal with anger kind of in the moment? Excellent. So first is this, when you become angry, just do what you can. You know, in writing the book, I tried to stay away from things that, you know, if you, you know my style, it's I, I try to go outside the box and see what hasn't been covered. So I wanted to stay away from, you know, the, the things that have been done so many times. But there's one thing I could not escape from that I put into the book because it is indisputably effective. And that is to breathe. You know, when we become angry, breathing becomes shallow and uh, our ability to think becomes clouded. Taking deep breaths physiologically allows for us to feel more calm. The central nervous system is relaxed. It is a very effective thing to do. Having said that, the first thing to do is to say, okay, fine. I'm angry right now. I'm in pain. Then try to find the connection with the fear. If once I'm telling you, I've worked with convicts with this. I've worked with, you know, hardcore people that have anger issues from the beginning they were born and they have become transformed, not because of anything magical I did, but because once you're able to really see the connection and that I'm angry at you, not because of what you did to me, but because I'm connecting it to a feeling of fear that I feel vulnerable, I feel unsafe. And then when I go to the and say, why do I feel unsafe? And you're able to walk yourself through these conversations, you become almost impervious to insult or to offense. And it's not because you don't care what other people think, but you realize that you're not in pain. It's not real pain. You feel like it's, you know, the fight or flight response. You feel like it's an actual danger. In much the same way you see a bear in the woods and the fight or flight response is engaged. But once you realize that it's just a kid in a costume, it dissipates. So in much the same way, if you know you think it's a real danger, you feel vulnerable, you feel unsafe, you feel that you are emotionally threatened, that you're not loved or lovable, you're going to become angry. But once you realize that that's not the case, the fear dissipates. So having an honest conversation with yourself is invaluable. Certainly, visualization is fantastic. And one of the other things that we do is there's a, a great methodology where you bring your physiology into it. And it's not you, what you do is you take a deep breath at the same time, you relax your shoulders and you tilt your neck. There's a lot of psychology and, and physiology and research that goes into it. But tilting your neck is what it does is it sends a subconscious uh, message to your brain that you're safe. Because when we feel threatened, we go into sort of a uh, aggressive posture. So by moving into a open posture, physiologically speaking, taking a deep breath, it allows for you to trigger those times when you felt calm, you felt relaxed, you felt you were not being threatened, and you're sort of able to just instantly go into that state. And we find is, is that physiologically speaking, actually the author is Jill Bolt, who uh, has done amazing research in this area. And she explains that, you know, the feeling of anger, any type of negative emotion in about 90 seconds, physiologically speaking, it moves through you. After that 90 seconds, you can either own it 
or dismiss it. So even though your body may be reacting to a genuine threat, by walking through this protocol in about 90 seconds, you flush the, that physiology out of your system and you can regain control over your emotional equilibrium right then in the moment. And then soon you're gonna find that the little things simply don't bother you and less and less and less things bother you. You know, there's a saying in biology that neurons that fire together wire together. So every time there's a stimulus and a response, you, you strengthen those connections. So what we find is it takes no more than about three to four weeks to begin to reconfigure that connection. And in the field of neuroplasticity, it shows just how quickly you can rewire your brain and set up an entire new neural network that rather that's anger driven is able to remain calm. And the best part about this, Matt, it's not a calm that you sort of force on yourself. You're not fighting an uphill battle. You're saying, okay, fine, but I'm doing these techniques. I'm calming myself down. It's not even registering on the radar. It instantly is coming in as a non-threat. So you don't have to work. You don't need willpower. You don't have to exercise self-control in order to calm yourself down. If your ego's not engaged, it's not going to grow. And so you will simply remain unbothered. And it's just an amazing way to feel so much more empowered over your life because you know that no matter what you face, you're not going to lose control of yourself. You're going to be able to maintain a sense of emotional equilibrium in that situation and then deal with it as healthy as you possibly can. Very practical examples. And funnily enough, for listeners who want to dig in, we actually interviewed uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor a couple weeks ago. So, And she, she goes even more in depth into kind of the 90-second rule and how that works. So, David, I'm curious, you know, for listeners who want to kind of concretely implement something we've talked about today, whether it's with anger management or kind of changing their self-concept and self-esteem, what would be one piece of homework that you would give listeners to kind of take a first step to concretely implement the things we've talked about today? Excellent. So the best thing you can do is to sit down in a quiet space and look at the connection between your anger and fear. And we find that there are pivotal points in our childhood that we felt insecure, we felt helpless, we felt vulnerable, and we responded in a certain way. And if you're able to go back and say, you know what, when I was in third grade or I was in fifth grade or so on, I felt very helpless, or I felt alone, I felt so on. And then this is how I dealt with it. And then you see how that sort of plays out in relationships today. And I've worked with so many people who have, you know, again, hardened, you know, folks that have, you know, spent a life with in violence and have very, very difficult upbringings in childhood. And when they're able to see that their response today is based on a corrupted conclusion of something that they're sort of, you know, transposing and picking up and using the template from when they were a child and they felt helpless, and that's how they dealt with it then, when they see that connection, it almost magically dissolves. But really just spending time on it and seeing that our response today doesn't have to be based on the response that we had when we were young. And in the situation, when you're able to just slow it down and say, I'm angry, but what is the fear? What is the underlying fear? Do I feel helpless? Do I feel unloved? Do I feel not respected? Do I feel rejected? And then ask yourself, you know, why am I really in pain? How much power am I giving this person over my emotional health? You begin to have an honest conversation with yourself. You begin to unwind from that automatic angry reaction and you regain control over yourself. And where can listeners find you and your various books and works online? So Never Get Angry Again is at, you know, fine and probably not fine bookstores. I never looked in those, but, uh, you know, it's on Amazon and everywhere. I'm on Instagram. 
Uh, I just started that actually. It's dr underscore Lieberman uh, website. I think I'm not really a technically savvy guy, but it's I think it's drlieberman.com. And I've got plenty of lectures online. If you just sort of Google me, you'll see a number of talks on self-esteem, happiness, relationships, uh, overcoming uh, conflict, obstacles, challenges, those types of things. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this wisdom. We got really deep into some of the strategies in the science, and I really appreciate you taking the time to explain all of these concepts and ideas to our listeners. Matt, you're a super guy, an amazing talent. You've got a terrific show, and I so appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 